welcome back to season 2 of Legends of Read. My name is Joanne Sukumaran and I'm a bassoonist based in Singapore. Today I'm so glad to feature solo bassoonist Nadina McKee-Jackson. She's the most widely recorded Canadian bassoonist in history with 13 solo albums, 8 chamber music recordings and dozens of albums with symphony, chamber and historical instrument orchestras. Welcome to the show Nadina. Thank you so much, Joanne. Um, thanks for connecting with me um, online uh, through <laughs> social media and then uh, uh, coming on board this interview series. Um, it's pretty unusual to, uh, to talk to a female solo bassoonist. Um, how do you feel about that? Could you tell us briefly how uh, um, your <laughs> career progressed and how uh, you made it to this point in, in Briefly. All right. You're yeah. going to have to cut me off. But, because yeah. I think as I get older, I talk more. Yeah. Um, but as you said, it's likewise for me, it's a great pleasure to talk to a female solo bassoonist. Yeah. And I'm really impressed that you're focused and organized and that you're also talking to us. Um, not that we'll give any answers, but I think that looking at each other's experience can help. Um, conditions are always changing, though, and, and that's part of it. So briefly, I... I grew up in the north of Canada, really far from everything. We were on a ranch. Um, my father built the house, he built the road. We grew the vegetables and everything. And we were um, far from electricity, but we didn't miss it as kids. And that's pretty well how I grew up until I was uh, 16. But when I was 14, I, I uh, was introduced to the bassoon by my amazing band teacher. And I practiced really hard. There were no teachers. And I flew down to the big city once a month for 10 lessons before I auditioned for university. I got into university when I was 16. I had no background of being taken to lessons or I had a great life, but um, you know, I had a horse and I knew how to chop wood and I knew a lot of things, but there was no art is good for you, you have to have lessons. We did listen to the radio. We, my mother listened to the Metropolitan Opera every Sunday. They would turn on the generator and turn on the radio and she would listen. I ignored it and, and they gave us paper to draw. So there was no, there was all access to art, but we made it ourselves. And so when I went to university when I was 16, I was catching up and I had a great teacher, Christopher Millard. And I just practiced and I did not go to my classes. And uh, so I, I think that um, it took me, I had to focus every effort on learning to play the bassoon. And I don't know why I felt it was so important because right now I'm not sure why it's that important. I mean, I, I love it still, but I don't know how to put it into words. And uh, so after two years, they were kind of tired of me not going to my classes. I was doing really well on bassoon, but I got into the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia and there they let you practice a lot. And I had, a, I had two great teachers there, Bernard Garfield and Saul Schoenbach. All three of these teachers, not one of them referred to me as a female bassoonist. Not one of them felt that I had anything but the greatest chance of success. They weren't, they challenged me. They didn't promise me the world. There was just no sense that I, that I couldn't do it. And I don't really know why that was, 
maybe it was maybe they were a product of the 60s where the equality was becoming a reality i think that's gone away now for whatever reason but those three guys were amazing and then i got my first orchestral job when i was 22 i got two jobs i got co-principal in mexico and i got second in montreal but montreal had just started that huge uh, london deca recording contract um so we we did hundreds of recordings that orchestra has continued to record and that was a really rough and great experience um, being thrown straight into high-end recordings and the, because the orchestra was very good i was able to again these were not things i was aware of i just assumed the orchestra would be good and the whole the whole wind section was rock solid so i took all the second players and we made a woodwind quintet and i felt you know i talked regularly to my teachers and he they felt that i should be doing recitals um, at least twice a year. And to me, that seemed very normal. And, and then I decided somewhere in the middle there that I wanted to start playing concertos. And that's when the boat started to rock. Um, I did get to do the Mozart a few times, but it caused, uh, it caused consternation and within the section. And, and it, you know, they said second bassoonist shouldn't be playing concertos. And I thought, oh, why not? And, but I was blissfully unaware that that was a hierarchical uh, mandate. I don't know if it still exists. I don't know if orchestras still think that way. I don't know if it was because I was a pretty young woman. I don't mean pretty. I mean, I was a fairly young woman. <laughs> I was pretty cute. But, um, it, I don't know if it was that kind of situation. So, to actually succeed at these things, you have to have perseverance. And I sometimes wonder if having obstacles is better than having encouragement. Because I, I mean, there's no simple one solution fits all. But if there are obstacles, and if in my case, if you don't actually understand them, then you just keep pushing. It's like a dog trying to get out the front door, like just keep scratching. So but that doesn't mean I had confidence. It's you do need experience to gain the confidence and playing the Mozart's one thing. Cause I got to do it when I was at Curtis and I felt that I, you know, I'd memorized it already. And, but to go on to other concertos, but there's, it is that explorer's instinct that we all have. What's, what's possible. Cause you know, when you play the bassoon, you know, I mean, you're, you're manifesting it already by improvising on your, on your CD. You can, feel the possibilities and I know that I wasn't reaching them and one of the ways to get to them is to ask other people to write for you mm. and when they say well what do you want you say uh you go right ahead and just write me something uh, let's see what <laughs> you know imagine my sound in your music and and then I'll spend five years trying to learn to play it it's that's <laughs> fine <laughs> well I've got one concerto I've premiered it it's so hard and I like it so much. It's yeah. called Apollo 10 by Paul Frayner. And I've, I've played it with two orchestras, maybe three now. Oh my gosh, it's hard. And, and it's based on 60s pop music. And, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'll just practice it until I get it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, wow. I it's, see. it's, um, yeah, so I, I think I've wandered off your very direct question um, yeah, maybe true. it was a bit too direct. I mean, so so it was playing the Mozart bassoon concerto that 
kind of ruffled some feathers. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Even the idea of a second bassoonist playing concerto is like, who do you think you are? And I think that's a really great al title for an album. Who do you think you are? Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> I second that. Yeah. And, and I think for any young person, that's a, a jolting question because when you're a student, especially if you have um, noble teachers, the, the idea is if you work hard, you'll get better. If you get better, you can do more on the bassoon. When you can do more, you need to be heard. That actually isn't true in real life. It's, it's a much more dangerous path than, at least emotionally dangerous than, than that. And you have to learn the skills to navigate that, which I don't think I've ever learned, but whatever. So, um, and then, but to try and make a, a, a logical story out of that, I, I left the Montreal Symphony. I had overuse injuries. There was another, um, it was in that orchestra. It was a big orchestra, so there were four people in each section. But in the bassoon section, the associate principal got moved to contra, and part of his contract said that he would never have to play second. So I was always playing second, no matter what. And it's a lot of hours and I got really bad overuse injuries. And there was a period we didn't know if I would be coming back or not, but I did. And I came back with historical bassoons at first, thinking that that might be um, easier on the body. But in the end, it was mostly the stress of being in an orchestra that was so confining, like so many things you couldn't do while you were working so hard. and. I don't think that's unusual to that orchestra, although my particular situation of being uh, full-time second all the time is unusual. Um, so I left the orchestra and then became principal bassoon of the Canadian Opera Company. And I, I found that I did not like being buried in a pit where I couldn't hear the orchestra. It's mostly, sometimes I like to tell my story just so that, that students can think about it and imagine how they would have managed it differently. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually felt trapped in, in the pit. Like you have to, it was a, a profound deep pit under the apron of the, of the stage. You couldn't hear the singers. There's no monitors. And um, I thought this is hell that like to be playing Mozart and not hear the singers. So I left that. <laughs> and, <laughs> I can't, you know, you think I can, I can make this work. I still think that. Um, and just uh, suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> I can do this. Um, I'm strong, but I do think there's a point where it's probably more practical to stay within the situation. I don't know. I'm just guessing because I haven't done it, but I think if you stay within the situation and, and fight to make it work, I, there's no option, but to fight. So you just have yeah. to, refine yeah. your skills so that it might seem like you're negotiating, but it's actually yeah. fighting. Yeah. Um, that's been my life experience. And I've hesitated to share it because I, I feel that every life experience is different, but so many stories are coming out now about people's struggles that I think, I think we do have to learn how to fight for ourselves in a more effective way. I don't know. Mm. So anyway, after leaving the opera orchestra, I established Timing-wise, I think they overlapped, but the Caliban Quartet of Bassoonists, and that's a great group that began with me and the three members of the Toronto Symphony. And I had to drag them kicking and screaming because they didn't necessarily want to play bassoon quartets in their off time. And we produced um, 
three albums, three fantastic albums. Is that right? Three. And then we overlapped into other music. Uh, but there were a lot of, of concertos I wanted to record, but then I met a very good trumpet player, just one of the most spectacular musicians I've ever heard. His name was, is, is still Guy Few. And I was in the process of having a concerto written for me by Mathieu Lucier. And, but we had just started that idea and I called him and I said, can we change the, my concerto to a double concerto? And he paused for a second and then he, he wrote it. And so that's maybe when the concerto projects really started for me. Because then we recorded Mathieu's double concerto and the Hindemith, and then we filled it in with short solos. And then by then I had the bug, like that is great. If you're standing in front of an orchestra, you have the joy of playing, especially strings, um, playing with the strings, which is the most ex wonderful part of our lives, I think you know, playing with violins and especially with the violins, but every, the, every, every member of the string section and you get to say something and you get to be heard. Oh my gosh, that's addictive. Cause you know, our, you know, we, we do not get heard. And when we do, we're too loud or too sharp or something. So if you're playing as a soloist, you can actually speak in complete sentences. It's great. Yeah. And then, you know, I, by that time I had lists of albums that I wanted to record and I still have those lists. They're shifting all the time. Um, because often as bassoon players, we think, well, we should record completely Canadian works, which I've of course started doing, or we should complete re record complete French works or new, but I think we should maybe be thinking more in terms of what do people want to hear? And, and, I mean, you, you automatically do that when you create a recording. You don't just put down everything you're supposed to. You put stuff down that you really want to hear. But I'm, I'm thinking more about what that means because these projects cost a lot of money mm -hmm. to, do, to record with orchestra. Yeah. And, um, unless you have a sponsor. Which I'm I really don't. curious. Yeah, I mean, your collaboration with the trumpet player, or is that mm -hmm. um, why, why did you choose a trumpet? Or is it, was it because of your friendship and... Uh, I heard him play and it was, yeah, he's a very engaging personality. That's, that's one thing. It's just the, just the pure uh, lyric beauty of the playing that, that made me want to make that work. And I, I think that's a really great place to start, but I did all the fundraising. I did all the grant writing. I was the one that made it happen financially. And that after we did three big albums with orchestra, I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. It's just too, too big a burden. Um, too draining, right? I think. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, setting up a recording is one thing, but raising the money for it, that's killer. Like to get, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, remember I don't even want to think about it, but like <laughs> getting grant rejections right before the project starts. And I think the, my 18th century project, the Romanza recording with the Hummel concertos and Weber, and the Lochner, there was no funding available for that um, because it's all old music, right? Yeah. And it was, I suppose that crowdfunding was just starting about that time, but it didn't occur to me to go that route. I was just so busy and hadn't developed that sensibility for that. Um, yeah, I had, to, I had to just empty every savings account and borrow money, Oof. like right the... The, the day before recording started so that I could oh pay the Oh my goodness. Yeah. 
I would God. never do a recording and not pay the musicians. Yeah, and then, yeah. and then one of the other big projects, the Canadian Concerto Project, we record in summer because that's when we can get the players we want. They have a little bit of free time, but summer's a terrible time here. It's it's tropically off the charts and it's hot in ways that we're not used to and humid. So yeah, we had one day of thunderstorms and extreme humidity and my bassoon swelled up so much. It was kind of new at that point that I, I, I simply couldn't, I couldn't play it because the, the keys would keep sticking open. It's a, it's a, tw a, a 15,000 series heckle. And it was, it was about five years old at that point, but, and still not old, but, I had to lose a whole day of recording and that was $5,000. So I had to sell a Baroque bassoon to cover. I still paid the musicians because they were all there waiting. I just couldn't, couldn't get it to happen. And I had to reschedule this, that session of, for a month later. So um, that part of it, I don't miss raising the money for it. And I, I think there might be more options now, but did, did um, things get better? Did you like find, um, for example, a label that was uh, going to help with the recording course? Or? I don't know what your experience is. Um, yeah. I have not found a label. I searched a bit and then just said to heck with it. I haven't found like MSR is my label for distribution, but I still pay all the costs for recording. And I also pay the costs for printing. So I don't know uh, what maybe with artists, maybe some artists are able, I certainly, I don't know, but among bassoonists, but there, there might be artists who can find labels that'll, that'll back uh, an orchestral recording. I don't know of them. Oh, they certainly okay. haven't been leaping out of the woodwork. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I really understand because last year when I did my Kickstarter campaign yes, and, and I played the, I think a house concert like two days before the, the deadline, <laughs> my, my, my cousin saw me and she's like, you know, you look like you haven't slept for two months or something. <laughs> yeah, it's probably longer. Yeah. yeah, and then that's how I feel about raising money. So I know it's uh, quite um, uh, such a big, ambitious project, but do you think yes. that people should still do recordings? Because, you know, we can't earn money from it. So you think it's still worthwhile? Yes. It is if you can find somebody, like if you can, I think the fact that you're developing your fundraising skills at such yeah. an early age yeah. is yeah. really great. And you're going to, as a result, you're going to be more alert to how things shift and what the new possibilities are. It's, it's the jungle aspect of our profession. And I was a bit spoiled because I grew up, like with Montreal Symphony, watching, watching a big record company pay for our incredibly expensive projects. I didn't assume the same thing would happen. I was just used to recording and I thought, well, of course this is worth doing, but it is worth doing because for someone like me, I would disappear without, like it's one thing for me to be ambitious and to have a wish to express the voice of the bassoon. But if, if there's no example of it, who, who's going to know about me? I suppose these days you could get on YouTube and do it, but I can't really answer that definitively. I think, uh, if you can get the same level of sound and, and production and do, do it on a homemade YouTube channel, that would probably be better. But um, given my classical musician mentality where we tend to package something and present a recital or a product, um, I think it's a good calling card. I don't know. 
I don't know. I'm certainly not going to do another. I mean, I've got projects backed up right now, but none of them are coming out of the gate until, you know, there's a hundred thousand dollars sitting there waiting for that to happen. Yeah. So we'll I, Yeah. I recently uh, listened to this interview uh, from uh, Robert von Bach. He's mm-hmm. uh, he runs Beast Records. And then, okay. Yeah, uh, we have. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That's right now, I remember we have two yeah. of our albums with them. Yeah, and yeah. Then, uh, I remember he said that he thought of himself as a, like a, how you say a missionary that uh, yes. he that he wanted to uh, make sure that these people's voices were heard in the world. He did yeah. that for for yeah. the Caliban Quartet. So I, I think it was, boils yeah. down to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess being heard is really important to. That's yeah. all it is. And that's yeah. why I did it. And uh, part of me is still surprised. Like, it, you actually have to keep doing it if you, if you want that effect to work um, in order to ignite interest. It's not that people forget about you. They don't. Um, but they don't reach out and they don't, they're not as interested unless you're producing something new. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a commitment. And I think once you're aware of that, then to to develop the skills and aggressively go for fundraising. And, and it, it, it's the same as having the confidence to walk out on stage, having the confidence to fundraise and to multitask to the point where you're split into 15 different pieces. It has to be good for us, but it doesn't feel good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the same mental uh, toughness to multitask yeah. is the same to walk out on stage, you say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it's a lot easier for me to walk out on stage than it is to ask for money. And, but you know, you know, cause you've done the Kickstarter, you have to be organized and you have to follow through. And, and uh, it's the same with grant writing. You, you learn about accounting and you learn about accountability and, and bookkeeping. And, and these are all skills that I don't think come particularly naturally to certainly not to me, but to many musicians. And, but that's how the world is. Mm-hmm. The world of commerce is built that way, and that's what we're trying to. Mm. We're not making money from the recordings, although I, you know, when I go on tour, I do sell a lot of them. Um, but there's, I haven't had a tour in. I'm not, I haven't had a real tour in at least three years. So, when when I'm not touring, they're they're kind of just sitting in a box. Speaking of recording, there's an excellent recording of Nadina playing Matthew Lucier's Otford Concerto for bassoon and orchestra. Nadina is performing this concerto in two orchestras on November 7th and 21st on both sides of Canada. So another topic I, I thought that we could discuss was possibly uh, navigating a music career, uh, like uh, as a female musician. Do you what do what challenges do you think that female musicians face today? What do you, I knew you would ask me that. Yeah. <laughs> I've been yeah. thinking about it a lot. Um, yeah. 
I, I don't know. Um, I can just by looking, because my career has been long, just because I, even though I started the bassoon late, my career started early and, and I haven't quit. So that just makes it a long career. And I've done a lot of things. I think my biggest mistake was, uh, this is not going to sound good, was being extremely trusting and mm. feeling that if I worked hard, it would lead to good results. That's only a very small part of the equation. So I think it's hard for everybody. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have an answer that doesn't sound crazy. So I'm not sure I want to say it, but you have no, to be very no. wise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that, yeah, there might be a kernel of truth and even um, a slightly crazy sounding answer, but I think you have to be, you know, music is based on trust. You, when you play your best with another musician, you can lean in and know that you're going to, you know, you're going to catch each other. And, but I was pretty naive in terms of reciprocity. Like I thought if I paid for, if I really initiated projects, then something would come back. It doesn't necessarily. So I, I kind of burned out that way financially. I think, I think navigating as a female musician, you have to have a contract. You have to read your contract. You have to, I know that's not exactly what you're talking about, but it's um, knowing what you're walking into and what you're going to get out of it. And, and being extremely pleasant and easy to work with while being extremely watchful. Mm, yeah, because uh, recently we had, uh, I mean, not this year, but the previous yes. year of the Me Too uh, campaign, right? You know, yeah. I wanted to call yeah. my version of it, uh, why me? Like, it's... <laughs> okay. Yeah. I had newspaper reporters from Montreal write to me and say, during that period, they wrote to me and said, we understand that you left the Montreal Symphony abruptly. We're very sorry if something awful happened. And I wrote straight back and I said, that conductor did not abuse me sexually. <laughs> Sorry, you don't have a story there. There's other things. We can talk about the contract and and um, and disparities and equity uh, and the avert no notion of equality, but they weren't really interested in that. So I find it super hard to talk about because um, you can't really get anywhere in music without the support of other colleagues and without opportunities. The support of other colleagues leads to opportunities and how to navigate that and how to develop the skill so that you're trusted and supported. It's something that, that is really important. So yeah, in, in terms of a general discussion, I, I, I didn't get abused by my teachers. I didn't, didn't have to face that kind of direct assault. But it seems to be proud, uh, you know, something that people have to be aware of. But yeah, it seems so uh, so difficult because I, I keep reading more and more stories. And yes. Even from peers, uh, for example, recently the the young Canadian bassoonist Caitlin uh, Coleman mm -hmm. came yeah. up with her story. So it's a really uh, difficult story. So I think she she set up her own group to to uh, deal with that being a victim of assault. Yes, so, yeah, and yeah. you know, it, 
when I hear stuff like that, it, I just want to come out swinging, just, just, um, and I, they're coming up with a different solution. Like they're just presenting the pain mm. and, and, um, yeah, they've just had their first concert. So that'll, that'll be really interesting to see how that evolves and, and takes shape. That's one way of fighting back. That's great. Mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I think that it's a really political world and I think that's where everybody um, has difficulties and and uh, yes I think that if you get a platform maybe looking back on my career I would say that now that I've come this far I realized that I probably could have achieved what I wanted from any of those platforms I felt very restricted at the time but I think I think that there are the means to to define your your objectives and and carefully build towards them. Mm -hmm. uh, I just felt that if I re removed myself from these restrictive situations which are happen to be all the classical music platforms mm -hmm. that that it would be easier. I don't know. I'm sorry to be so vague. Like I've I've gone through a lot, but I, I hesitate to generalize about it. Yeah, yeah, um, I know. I've I've been asking you really difficult questions. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, and yeah. they'll they'll continue to play in yeah. my mind. Yeah. Um, but my greatest feeling is one of caution. Like to when I say don't trust, uh, maybe that's not exactly it. To to always be cautious as you're trusting. Mm, yeah. Okay. And make sure that you're protected. Mm. And that you have a contract. <laughs> a lot of people don't want to give a contract. Yeah. And if, like to the, yeah. <laughs> if you give me a contract, and it can be, even when you're working with a partner, just actually set down the objectives. It makes people very uncomfortable. And I find that if it's, it does, if you if your objectives are clear and they're mutual, it's actually not uncomfortable. But if there's some kind of concern about who's going to pay for what then it becomes more uncomfortable. So I, I would just put it in writing. Yeah, okay. And good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think um, when we were chatting earlier, you said actually that uh, you found that obstacles were actually uh, more yes. helpful to you. Well, that's in retrospect. Yeah. I just yeah. wonder. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm a contrary person or, or if that if you can see something good in front of you, which for me is like the, the, the freedom and uh, agility and clarity in the sound of the bassoon, but there's something preventing me. Like if I, when I was young, I thought, well, if I could, if I could go to a school and study with a great teacher, mm -hmm. and then if someone says, well, how are you gonna do that and why and what's the purpose? That's an obstacle. And then I just, just barreled through. Um, I, the examples are going to come to me later, but I think it ignites your own commitment when there's an obstacle. Mm -hmm. So maybe put in tr truly simple terms, if, if you want to do something and somebody blocks you and then you just turn and go another direction, that means you didn't want to keep going, mm -hmm. maybe. Or the blockage was so extreme that you didn't have the strength to, to go past it. But um, yeah, in my life, the blockages were, were, um, were small. Hmm. 
So it kind of gave you your fire in the belly, in a sense? I like, think so. That would be probably yeah. a, an articulate way of saying it. Yeah. I, I just I just wonder. It's not that I haven't received encouragement as well. I mean, I think you would you would die of despair if, if there was no... <laughs> you do need someone patting you on the head and saying, yes, that was very good. You're the best. Once in a while. Once, once in a while, yeah. All right. Yeah, I, I, maybe my point is to not to fear the obstacles and um, mm. and they seem opaque at the time yeah. and maybe that that's also maybe that's my general comment about myself every time I felt huge obstacles in my employment situations I would say all right I'm going somewhere else hmm. but um, and I don't regret my life I think that's led to education and that was my fear of staying in the orchestra but that was the first thing I wanted a sabbatical to go and study baroque bassoon and classical bassoon in Europe and they said because I was the only second bassoonist. I could never have a sabbatical. And that's when my brain went, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, <laughs> what? And that's really when I should have got a lawyer because the contract allows for a sabbatical for, for uh, educational purposes. Yeah. I thought, yeah, if I, if I can never leave this and can't. So um, I left and, and did learn to play those instruments and did get, make some great connections and do some recordings. And I probably had to leave, but but now I don't know if we have to. I think that the we might have the tools to fight more. I see, I see. Maybe more equity now, I think, yeah. Maybe, but to never assume that. Never? But, yeah, yeah. Never assume it, you just have to yeah. get it in writing. <laughs> <laughs> equity on the paper. <laughs> okay, coming back to the present, um, do you mind um, maybe sharing with us some of your concert series you have, I think, um, Bassoon Out Loud and Ophelia Speaks. Yes. And, and the children's uh, series also, the Darwood. Thank you. Bassoon. Yeah, um, yeah. So this is, I, I'm calling this kind of my sabbatical year because I had to, I had to move again. Yeah. And I'm trying to, yeah, the, the projects I'm trying to finish are the, my book, The Solitary Refinement, which yeah. is the, the, the technique, it's uh, chromatics, chords and concepts for committed bassoonists. That's almost done. It's the text part is holding me up a bit. And the children's series, Darwood's Wild Bassoon, it's, uh, my ex-husband wrote the story. It's about a, a young dragon who was the most talented fighter and flyer in the village. And he was about to write his final exam and be a fighter for the rest of his life. But he said to his teacher, I, I just want to be a bassoonist. And his, his teacher said, that's ridiculous. Only sissies play the bassoon. Anyway, he has to go on this huge journey and all his great talent and skills actually serve him on the journey. He's able to, he can fly so fast, he can go back in time. And he ends up getting some artifacts on, it, on his journeys, but he feels he's failed. And it turns out that the artifacts can be alchemically changed into a bassoon. And it turns out that all the dragons in the village actually want to be bassoonists, but none of them actually could break through the barrier. And so they rejoice, but maybe that's where my idea about obstacles comes from. So his obstacles were insurmountable, but he summoned every, every effort. Um, so that actually, that's the music's written for that. We've done the show a few times, but I've designed 21 dragon sized paintings that go with it. Um, I finished 11 of them. It's taken me like 15 years, <laughs> but I don't have time to work on it. So I'm hoping to do that this year. And then I like to tour that, but they're huge. Like the paintings range from eight by four to four by four. 
so I'm just running out of house all the time. And but that's a great project. And then because we have more technology now, I'm hoping that can all go on video as well as be a, a display. So that's Starwood's Wild Bassoon. Bassoon Out Loud was a super ambitious series that I launched two years ago without funding. And I thought that I would, you know, that was super naive, but I, I had 41 different artists and new music and and I ex the series collapsed after the 12th concert because I was just completely out of money. Oh. And um, so, yeah, there's, I've got a fridge magnet that says, if I can't be a good example, I can be an excellent warning to others. So, <laughs> <laughs> but that was fun. And, and, um, and to plan a 12 concert series without funding is, is insane. But I actually think that's what we should be doing. And, and I was bringing in folk artists and, and dancers and, and there's so much you can do with the bassoon. So I think I manifested some of that and documented it and I'll do it again. Um, once I've raised the gazillion dollars I need. And then Ophelia Speaks is, uh, this is the project I've wanted to do for a long, long time where I, I, the music that I love for strings and bassoon, but, and that's just in a nutshell, Ophelia is a relatively minor character. Well, she dies really quickly in Hamlet. I mean, everybody dies in the end, but, and if you read her text, she's such a pure-hearted, well-intentioned person, only meaning the best. And every, everyone from her beloved father to, to Hamlet, everyone misunderstands her and, and her brother and twists her words. Everyone twists her words to the point where she, her brain pops open and she kills herself. And I just would love to reimagine that where she just took a step back and said, no, that's not what I said. I think I'm going to leave. <laughs> I'd like her to be the sole survivor of that whole mayhem. So I'm, I'm doing a show that puts our music together, but in, instead of examining her intense pain and suffering, denying it and just, just handing it back to the perpetrators and in a funny way. I want to do it in a funny way. So, but it combines music that's been written for me and I will do something with electronics and loop and, and my string players are all composers. So um, we will expose people to our music while interjecting with the story. And then I hope over time that'll develop into something bigger, but that's what I'm working on now. I'll be able to tell you more about it after we do it in March. <laughs> that'll oh, be, yeah. it, in it'll be March. Effects, right? Yeah. Olympics, yeah, and it's they've scheduled it for International Women's Day, so that'll be fun. Uh, eight of March. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we get a day. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> really, it seems that you have evolved beyond the concertos to becoming a, like a storyteller. It seems that's a lovely way to say it. Yeah, I think about what I really want to do, and yeah, and I just love playing my bassoon, but I also like um, speaking to people. So I, I think being a stand-up bassoonist would be the, the ideal mm. goal and to find a way to combine the, the art. Mm. Meanwhile, I'll just keep working on it and having the materials ready and, and, and either I'll die with all, <laughs> all of this <laughs> stuff or, um, or some combination of the technology that we have now will mix with I love the fact that we are perpetrating uh, a lost art. 
it's kind of a, like to be playing acoustic instruments that we make reeds for, it's ridiculous. Who does that now? I mean, some mm -hmm. of us do, but not very many. Um, but I, I think it's still incredibly valuable. Maybe by the, in another 10 years, I'll be able to articulate that in a way that's persuasive, mm. I hope. The possibilities for vivid sound and vivid, vivid images and vivid words are immense. And I have not seen too many examples of them yet. I have, but yeah, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. So you also champion, I see, young bassoonists. You run yes. the Council of Canadian Bassoonists. Um, yes. Yeah. That's a charity that I established in 2006. My son, who is a very practical person, recently challenged me. He said, why have you established a charity? He said, it's only rich people that can have charities. I went, oh, maybe that's the problem. But it's, we have done some good and I've, it's not just to help. I mean, we mostly help young players, but it's actually to help bassoonists who are struggling um, in Canada, it's a huge country, immense. Uh, when I was a kid, I had to fly um, 500 miles to get a lesson. So, and there was one plane a day and it was 50 bucks and I didn't have money for a hotel. So I slept in the airport and then I'd fly back the next morning. Um, I don't want other kids to have to do that. I'm not sure that any other kids would, but, um, and so many kids, like everything about our instruments expensive from the reeds to maintaining it. Anyway, I established the Council of Canadian Bassoonists. We helped a few kids. We had instruments for a while, but then I thought I can't, I can't really get anywhere because I'm so busy and I, you need a bigger pool of people. So I finally have, have secured a 12 person board with great players and also conductors and also like strategy managers from, from Rogers Corporation, the, the big telephone, tele, telecommunications network. I've got all these great people and they spread across Canada and two in the US. So I just have to schedule the first meetings and then we can start to be more productive. Like I, I've just been helping here and there and, and we managed to put a big bassoon festival on the University of Toronto in 2015, but I can't do it all myself. I've, I never thought I could, but I, you know, I always thought, oh, the support will come. It doesn't, you have to organize everything. So I think I've organized a spectacular team and we will get our Facebook page up soon. <laughs> oh, and I'll have more, yeah. yeah, I'll have more, I'll, I'll, I'll be writing to you of course anyway, but I, I hope to have more, more concrete plans because until now we've just been supplying like read tools reads lessons lots of free lessons but i want also to manifest i think that's the only way people people can imagine themselves is to see an example to see performances to see see what's possible instead of these endless master classes where somebody comes in and beats you over the head for an hour nicely mm -hmm. or cruelly one or the other they're tedious support. <laughs> yeah that's it and so yeah i think we have to manifest re um examples of performance and mm -hmm. why why people should pay us like mm -hmm. is this good or is it not mm. yeah thank you for asking about that yeah, I see you're really invested in education and teaching. Um, 
What do you enjoy the most um, from teaching and helping young people? What I enjoy the most is 10 years later, like tomorrow, one of my former students is coming to visit from New York. So he's flying to Toronto. I mean, he's got other business. He's yeah. on the licensing team for Spotify. And then he's yeah. going to drive up here. And I can't wait to see him. And, like, and another of my students just won a position with the Minnesota Symphony as their outreach and education director. Both, both these guys are excellent bassoonists, but brilliant people who maybe didn't fit into that narrow performance channel. They'll still do performances. And what I love is how, <laughs> I love teaching my students, but I, what I really love is that they become colleagues and uh, so resourceful. So it's, when I was younger in the symphony that I was, when I was 22, they asked me to start teaching immediately at the university. And I, I said, no, I'm too, I don't know anything. They said, well, you probably do because you got in the symphony. And I thought, hmm, it's not enough. But I think it's necessary to teach to keep developing as a performer. When I was 22, I thought you were either one or the other. But yeah, the teaching is great. I've also started teaching on Skype. But we're going to use, maybe we'll use Zoom now. Thank you for introducing yeah. me to that. And also for the, for the board meetings for the council, I think Zoom will yeah, be great. Yeah, Zoom is pretty neat, I think. Yeah. 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 So, and the teaching forces me to organize my thoughts. And, um, but that's why this year I actually don't have any regular students. So this is why I can finish my, my book. It's not a method, but it's a compendium of concepts and, and that can be adjusted. And I'm really glad that I'll, I, there's so many benefits from teaching. It's also a brutal hard way to make a living. I don't think it's a way to make a living. And certainly not in Canada because there are no university positions. It's all contract. And oh really? Huh. You have to have so many students to make that work. So, um, yeah, it's better if your work is supported another way in the teaching. I see. That's part of it. Um, That's just my experience here. I know it's different in other countries. Uh, what has been the best piece of advice you've ever received from a mentor or from a teacher? Can you? You ask forward? beautiful questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I think I can, you know, it's funny. I can think of people's faces. There's, there's so many. So I have to go with recent ones. I'm thinking of two. I was thinking um, when I was in my thirties and I was planning a recital, I wrote to my old teacher who was Saul Schoenbach. And I told him I was going to play the Prokofiev Sonata and the Brahms E minor cello sonata and the Beethoven Mozart variations, which I do all the time on recital now, not so much the Brahms, but <laughs> I guess we were on the, I thought I wrote to him, it was on the phone, he said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> I thought, oh, maybe I am, that's okay, and again, I <laughs> did it, right? <laughs> he said, play some bassoon pieces, so I added some bassoon pieces. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> he was an incredibly supportive person so that I'm, I thought stop, it made me think it didn't make me change it just made me think and then most recently the wife of Michael Colgrass Michael Colgrass is a wonderful composer and we were close and he just passed away recently but I'm still friends with his wife and and uh, she just said something really interesting to me the other day she said she said because I like to write and I suspect you do too and, and many bassoonists do are good decent writers but do it for yourself she said 
don't write a list of what you want to accomplish. Um, describe your life as you best imagine it to be. Not as a future thing, but imagine you're in it right now. Write it down and, and do that a few days in a row. I find it actually quite hard to do that. It feels like taking the lid off the, the magic genie bottle, right? And she says, do that for a week and see what happens. So um, that's, that's not a pithy piece of advice. That's just a, a call to action that's pretty interesting. Hmm. I, I, um, so imagine the life that you want to lead right now. Yeah, like, yeah. but be in it. Be um, in it. Oh, in terms oh, of every oh. aspect of your artistic manifestation, um, everything. And then, then your immense human resources will will probably conspire to lead you in that direction. And, and if you've made a mistake, you just keep writing and it'll, it'll, so I think her point being is you imagine your life and it fills in around you. Mm. Well, that sounds easy, but it's not. You actually have to mm. do the work. Mm. Okay. These are such great questions and I know I'll um, think of other answers, but you're so approachable. I, I will, um, if I get a brilliant answer, I'll send it to you. <laughs> So I, I know I've been quite tough on you today with the questions. So, no, I appreciate uh, <laughs> it. Sorry, I don't yeah. have the brilliant answers. Yeah. I know that you're also a visual artist. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is that something you like to do for fun or is it a no, I, Well, I mean, yeah. um, I love doing it and uh, it's something I've done since I'm very young. So I have a degree of confidence that I don't know where it comes from much more than as a musician. So I can leave the art for quite a while when I have time to get to it. I just jump in. I'm not inhibited. I'm, and I'll try, I'll buy expensive paint. I'll do oils. I'll try this. I can also, if I need to learn something, I can copy really well, which I think is a great way. A lot of musicians do that. You copy something and then you develop something. It works in art too. Um, uh, that's where I realized I'm super privileged that I have the, because it's expensive to be an artist as well. I mean, you can do it with most rudimentary materials, or but then you know how your imagination, you want to expand mm -hmm. into colors. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but I've had, I think I've had six shows. Last year I sold 36 paintings. I mean, I hustled last year. I let people know I had works for sale. They always are for sale. Um, but I, I had two big shows about this time last year. And, and sold a lot. I had to because I moved to a smaller place and I still have 80 paintings all wrapped up. And that's the, the you know, because I've lived a long time now, I have to de debate whether I give up some of the paintings. Um, yeah, but anyway, uh, yeah. it's, I know a lot of musicians who can do more than one thing. Like the trumpeter that I worked with is also an exceptional pianist and an excellent singer. He just is all those things. He's actually a good artist too, and, and seamstress. Uh, uh, you don't have to do a lot of things, but if you have the urge to do it, it's not going to detract from your playing at all. Mm -hmm. And it is fun, but I don't do it for fun. Hmm. Do you have some, some fun hobbies that you like to do? Um, I think my life is a hobby, like at this point anyway. Oh. Yeah, I don't compartmentalize. Maybe that's a, a logical way of approaching one's life that I haven't done. Mm. I mean, I have a kayak in the basement, but I never take it out. But that would be a hobby if I could get my act together. <laughs> okay. Um, 
But yeah, that, that form of logic I haven't ever achieved. I mean, I, I guess, I, I, hobby, I don't actually understand the word. I also don't understand the word retirement. What? It doesn't really make any sense to me. What does it mean? <laughs> does it mean you yeah. lie down and sleep? No. I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. hobby, I feel like I'm really busy trying to maintain my bassoon playing and, um, and, and finish the projects, all of which could be identified as hobbies with an unsympathetic person, right? So, mm -hmm. or professions. Yeah. if they actually get turned yeah. into cash products. Yeah, if you were speaking to a banker, yeah, yeah, what's your real job? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've done it a lot. <laughs> They're just jealous, we know. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, I've come to the end. I just have one last question. <laughs> <laughs> I like that big sheet of paper there. <laughs> one last Thank question. Thank you for dedicating thought to this. Right before your CD release, right? It's in, in, in four days? Oh no! Uh, it was released last Friday, but this Sunday is the concert. Yeah, yeah. Just no, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Oh, so I have to buy it. It's a little bit staggered. It's a bit staggered. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I learned from my Kickstarter. Next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I was just curious uh, why you have blue hair. I mean, just. Uh, I'm debating about yeah. getting it all chopped off this week. I, I love yeah. the color blue. I mean. Yeah. If you, I don't know if my publicity pictures go back far enough, but starting in 2000, it was purple here. And then I've done, a, the piano tuner might be here soon. Anyway, yeah, maybe it's something, you know, when I was a child, um, somebody showed me about painting Easter eggs. And, and then I was probably three years old at the time, but I remember it. And she put all the colors and she, there was a bottle of blue paint, red and yellow. She left the room and I took the blue paint and drank it. Oh. And she came back in the room and she went, <gasps> and my mom went, oh. And, <laughs> but it was so beautiful. It tasted kind of awful, but um, I think, I don't think it was, I was fine. I didn't get sick. And um, it just, it was fun. I like it, but to be honest, it's a lot of work and it really trashes my hair. So I might just get it all chopped off this week. And, but I, it's been 10 years that it's been blue. Before that, I did all the colors. Uh, it's a pain in the ass. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to, maybe by next week, it'll be different. Oh, okay. There, there is actually a more direct answer to your question. In uh, 2008, when I recorded Romanza, that's when I did it blue, but it was, it was a mohawk sort of for the cover of the album and aqua on one side and dark blue on the other. And I really liked it. Wow. I kept it. Wow. So then I did it for a, for a photo shoot for an album. Cause I thought nice. it looked sort of like a powdered wig, especially the aqua color. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's no yeah. logic. Everyone yeah. needs and, a trademark, no, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's the yeah. problem, but yeah. I think I might, chop it all off because I have a blue bassoon coming next year that Benson um, ah. Bell is making me a blue, a beautiful blue sort of bassoon. Yeah. Fantastic. So I think all the money that I put into coloring my hair, I'll put into that bassoon. We'll see. I see. I, I, I'm not seeing my hairdresser until next week. So okay. <laughs> I don't know if that answers why, but that's no, certainly- No, I'm just curious. I'm just wondering if you would answer that question, but you did. 
Yeah, there's lots and lots of answers. Sometimes, and, yeah. and kids talk, more more little kids talk to me because of it than, uh, than they would otherwise. Yeah, yeah I it's guess. Not, yeah, it's not uncommon anymore. Like it used to yeah. be a little bit uncommon. It's not, yeah. not now. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. I've come to the you end. too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. It's lovely to meet you and talk yeah, to you. Yeah, lovely to talk to you. Yeah. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe or share it with your friends. That would mean the world to me. Thank you and goodbye.